0: Let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation, the last part of chapter 1, if you will, and also we'll begin with chapter 2 very shortly. Let's read verse 16, if you will. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. If you remember in verse 16, we pointed out that Christ's countenance as the sun shining in his strength uh, reminds us of the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was transfigured before them. And the Bible says his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Many references that we could give you, but Peter uh, responds to that in his epistle and he tells us that we were eyewitnesses of the coming and, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, the coming, I want to get it correct, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made unto you, uh, known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus but were eyewitnesses of His Majesty, so we know that Peter relates that Mount of Transfiguration and the sun, the Christ's face shining as the sun, uh, to the second coming of Christ and of His Majesty, which John sees here in the Book of Revelation. And then we find uh, verse seventeen says, "And when I saw Him, I fell at His feet as dead." This was John's response. You have. Revelation 1, verse 17. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And then he says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell, or Hades, and of death. It's actually the, the place of abode of, of Hades spoken of in the Bible. Now, verse 19 was the key to... The book of Revelation, we gave you that in our last lesson. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. We said that this is the three main divisions of the book of Revelation. The things which thou hast seen, this is verses 12 through 18 here in this chapter, this vision of the glorified Christ, and the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, which represent the, uh, speak of the Letters to the seven churches and so this is still the church age and it was the church age when John was writing and it continues till now and the things which shall be hereafter are after this church age and that begins to divide in the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation and through the end of the book. Now, we're told in verse 20 that the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. We find the symbolism of the seven stars and the seven candlesticks rightly explained by the Lord himself in, the, in this same verse. He says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The word angels means messengers. We believe it to be the pastors of these seven local churches that existed, that are named here in the first chapter as well as in the second and third chapter, the messengers. And he says in the seven candlesticks which thou sawest, and remember Jesus was in the midst of them in these lampstands or candlesticks. He says the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So we have no doubt but what these candlesticks represent, the churches. The churches are Christ's light bearers. We could bear the light in the world. There were many more churches in that day. Even in that area. The churches of Asia Minor actually. If you have a map, sometimes you can look at them and they're just a cluster very close together. And the churches, uh, many other churches were beyond their limits and some within their limits. But these were special churches chosen by the Lord Himself to uh, be meaningful to us for many reasons. Now then, when we get to the second chapter, verse 1, it says, Unto the angel, now watch this, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that uh, holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, and he refers to that vision, and who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So Jesus is seen here, even in his address to the church of Ephesus, notice carefully, that he's holding the seven stars in his right hand, the, the messenger's Are the pastors to these seven churches. And he says he walks in the midst of these seven golden candlesticks. Or in the midst of the churches. So Christ's presence is in the midst of his churches. Now that's simple enough, isn't it? Now then, I want to do something here, if you'll follow me. And give you an overall view of the meaning of the names of these churches. And you'll have to look at chapters 2 and 3. Confine your attention to chapters 2 and 3, and when I give you the verse, look at it. The first one we just read, under the angel of the church of Ephesus right. Now, Ephesus means desired or desirable. This is, uh, in the history of the churches, speaks of the apostolic church and the post-apostolic period. Up to about 100 A.D. As far as representing the age and times of the churches. We're going to find. Let me give you this first. That these messages. To the seven churches. First of all. Speak to these seven local churches. That existed in John's day. There are, these messages are addressed to those local churches. It has another application. It is. These messages are to admonish each local church in every age, even in this day and age. These seven particular messages are to admonish each local church even up until now and through the last 2,000 years of church history. So that the things that are found in those seven local churches that existed then are also some of the things that are found in churches today whereby Jesus condemns certain aspects of it and He uh, also commends certain things about the church. In fact, He usually starts with commendation and then ends with the thing that He finds wrong in the church. When you were here, and I was teaching in the book of 1 Corinthians and we just started a lesson. Paul used the same way of doing and dealing with the church at Corinth. He taught the church at Corinth and he told of all the good things and how privileged they were and how knowledgeable they were and how they had love for each other and all of these things. And then he says, but you know, I've heard, and he told the source of his hearing of the house of Chloe that there's divisions among you. And he starts dealing with their, their divisions that they have. Jesus starts out commending the churches. And then he comes back and he says, Now look, this is what's wrong with this church. Each and every local church. So, first of all, the letters that we're going to study are written to the seven local churches. Secondly, it's to admonish, admonish each local church in every age. And the third thing, It's personal to each individual in the church. And what do we mean by uh, each individual in the church? He speaks of the things that are going on in the churches. And he says, almost invariably, in chapters 2 and 3, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches, so it's personal. The individual in the church is to hear what this message is. And then it says, to him that overcometh. So the overcomer in that local church has a personal message. So you see, local, and then to admonish each church in every age, and then to the personal aspect of it that the individual that hears, let him respond. And so we can draw things today from the very message that John gave The Lord gave through John to these local churches that existed then. And we can draw a a spiritual temperature of ourselves personally. And then the last thought is that these these seven churches are prophetic. They prophesy the seven periods of the spiritual history of the church. And in giving you the meaning of these names, I will try to give you the seven periods of history of the church. From the time of the apostles, we already said this church of Ephesus was the apostolic church and the post-apostolic, which would take us to about 100 A.D. And so I want you to follow them. The next one of the churches, we'll come back and we'll deal with the message itself. In detail. But the next church, you'll notice in verse 8, it says, And unto the angel of the church of Smyrna, write. Smyrna means myrrh. This is the persecuted church. Myrrh represents suffering or persecution. And this is a church from about 100 AD to 316 AD, the persecuted church. And then you have, uh, in verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamus write, Pergamos means elevation, or they were elevated to, it also includes the thought of a thorough marriage. This was marriage with the world. And this is a period of corruption in the church. And that's from 316 A.D. to 500 A.D. And my notes are quite scattered, so I'll have to follow them as I go along to give you the correct uh, uh, years. And so that's the worldly church. Pergamus is the worldly church. And we'll deal with these churches and the messages to them in detail later on. And drop on down to... Verse, um, let's see, where's the next one? Uh, Thyatira. Okay, that is the uh, 18th verse. And unto the angel of the church of Thyatira, right. Now, Thyatira means a continual sacrifice. It reminds us of the sacrifice of the mass. This is the pagan church, by the way. The papacy. From 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D. The Romish corruption. And then we have, again, chapter 3, verse 1, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write. Sardis means those escaping. Are the remnant. This is the Protestant church. And it's from 1500 to 750 AD. And this is in the time of Luther. When uh, the great reformation. When Protestantism came into existence. And then we have. In the same chapter. Verse 7. Third chapter verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia right Now Philadelphia means brotherly love. We know it to mean that in our own country when we speak of Philadelphia. The city of brotherly love. But here Philadelphia means the same thing. Brotherly love. These were missionary and evangelistic churches. So we might call this the missionary church. And this would be the faithful remnant that came out of the reformation. And then we have the last church that's mentioned. And I'll give you this and then come back and talk over again some of the other things that we may have missed. Is in 3 verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Right. Now then, the Laodiceans means the rights of the people. It means the rights of the people. Now then, this is a church of apostasy. Can you imagine the rights of the people constituting apostasy? I believe it was H.A. Ironside said one time that we fought wars and we fought and fought to save the world for democracy. And then one of these days, we'll want to be saved from democracy because the rights of the people, the populace sometimes are wrong. Isn't that amazing? That the more people you get, and the more people you get on the wrong track. Not that we're against democracy. Don't misunderstand me. The church government itself is a democratic body. But on the other hand, when you get the masses of people that outnumber the good element, then democracy, you need to be saved from it. From democracy. And we're just about to that place today, aren't we? What are all the rules and regulations people go by? The polls. They say the Gallup polls say that America wants to do thus and so. And instead of going by convictions, we go by the polls, don't we? We go by what's popular. And that's the way our senators and congressmen and the like uh, think when they are up there doing the business of the nation. Are the people going to like it or are they not going to like it? And so when the preacher gets up to preach, is he going to stand up here and say, I'm going to preach a message that everyone likes. And sometimes if you do that, you're going to have to compromise the Word of God. So we have to take our stand upon what is true and what is right. And so this last period, the rights of the people, the rights of the people is what we're talking about. And, of course, it's the apostate church, the church of apostasy. And it's neutral. It's indifferent. There's repudiation. There's a lot of things we'll say about them as we go along. And that's from the 1900s. We've had that for almost all of the the 1900s and the 20th century that we're living in. We've had that drift away from God. We think it's been just recently, but uh, it's been for a good long while that this has been going on. Now, coexisting with this church of apostasy as far as the periods of church history are concerned are, is that missionary element of Philadelphia and some of the other elements of some of the other churches. The, the later churches that were... Uh, the, the, the worldly element is still there. And the missionary element is still there. Right alongside of those that are turning away from God. So we have it today. And they coexist until the end of the age. So when you think that this is only apostasy, it's not only apostasy. We still have missionary churches local. When we think of this day and age of grace continuing and people turning away from God and we think of apostasy and that period of church history that we're in as far as the grouping it in that area, we still have coexisting with that, that element of Protestantism, that element of suffering, and that element especially of missionary endeavor, brotherly love of the, the church of Philadelphia still exists along with it. Now that's as far as church history is concerned. Now then... Uh, When we go back, let's go back and look at this one church, the church of Ephesus. We said that we would deal with each one individually. So uh, let me give you those names again in case you missed them. If you have seven points on your notes, anywhere you're taking notes, or in the margin of your Bible, let me give you that meaning of that uh, church and if you write down the meaning of it, you'll have an idea of what's going to go on during the message to it. So, Ephesus, that's 2, one, chapter 2, verse 1, means desirable. Desirable. Uh, the second one that you find in 2, verse 8, Smyrna, unto the angel of the church of Smyrna, means myrrh. This is the faithful witness. There was persecution. You know, myrrh has to be crushed. So this church had to be crushed. And then you come down to verse 12. Pergamos. The angel of the church of Pergamos. It means a couple of things. Kind of a dual meaning. Elevation. It was a church that was elevated, and yet it was thoroughly married with the world. A thorough marriage. A thorough marriage, but the church being mar- being married to the world. And then verse uh, eighteen, Thyratira. This is a in means a continual sacrifice. Now, beloved, I'm not here to to try to get on any particular religion, but I'm just going to have to rightly divide the word of truth. And we know that there's only one kind of a continual sacrifice, and that's the sacrifice of the mass. That's a continual sacrifice. And every time the priest goes through giving the uh, sacraments, it Romanism says this, that it turns the actual element into the body of Christ. You know that to be so. It says this is the body of Christ. It is not the body of Christ. It represents the body of Christ in a Baptist church. But they say it is the body of Christ. And they offer a sacrifice. That is the sacrifice of the body of Christ. The Mass. A continual sacrifice. Now let me just say this. that—that That is what we call the doctrine of transubstantiation. That means that Through the words of the priest, it actually becomes that. Now then, Jesus said, this is my body. He says, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. But the Jews well understood that this was representative of his body and his shed blood. Because they dealt with symbols all through the Old Testament. They knew that everything was symbolized. Here we're told that it's signified as well. And so what we're saying here is that that was a Romish period of the church. And we said it existed from 500 to 1500 A.D. And after that Romish corruption and in the midst of it, Luther came out and we have the next period of church history, Protestantism. So let's go on to the next one. I just wanted to give you that in passing. Now then, if you'll notice chapter uh, 3, verse... uh, 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis. Sardis means those escaping. There were some that escaped. And that's the Reformation. That's Protestantism. So you have a faithful remnant. You have a remnant, and then you have a, coming out of that, that uh, Reformation period, you have the missionary church, Philadelphia. Drop on down to verse uh, 7. You have... What we know here is the missionary church and it's, it is a faithful remnant. It's not only a period of reformation, but Philadelphia, brotherly love in verse 7. The word Philadelphia means that. And then we go to that last church again that I gave you. And that was in 14, 3.14 says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, and we said it's the rights of the people. And that's where the apost- church of apostasy came in. Now then, let's go back and look, since we've given you kind of an overview of those uh, two chapters, the second and third chapter. And if you didn't get them all, well, I can furnish it to you uh, at the end of the service. But let's take this first church in chapter 2, if you will, please. Verse 1. Under the angel, or the pastor, the messenger of the church... Of Ephesus right. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. Who walk in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So at the very beginning. Jesus points out that he's the one. That holds the pastors in his hands. And he's the one that walks in the midst of these seven local churches. And these are representative of all the local churches though they be hundreds. And there were hundreds in, Paul, in, in John's day when he was writing this. So Jesus picked out these seven churches for a special reason. In order to give us a message that would fit the situation, it would be the general state, first of all, in this church, the general state of the things uh, at the date of His writing to this church of Ephesus. This is the general state of the conditions. And in this particular church, we're going to find that He identifies Himself as the one walking in the midst of all the churches. Though there were seven. Seven is the number of completion or perfection. So Jesus is seen walking in the midst of all the churches. And in all the churches, He's going to have some good things to say and some some things to condemn us about. Just as He did then. There will be some things He will commend this church of Ephesus for, and then He will condemn them for something else. He will show their faults. Isn't that what we like? Do we want people to just just praise us about everything, though we be wrong? That's not the good way to do it. We want people to tell us what's good about us, but if we have some mistakes and some correction that needs to be made, that's what we do. That's the same way that we deal with our children, isn't it? If we have children that uh, we say, well, my, this is a fine young lady or young man or boy or girl, and we'll say, I'm glad you did this. I'm glad you cleaned your room. I thought I might get some response. <laughs> but anyway, uh, and then you, you say, but look, what about this other situation? You say, can't you correct this? We don't just have a lopsided evaluation of everything, do we? We don't do that in our own lives. We say, well, you know, I might have a good point here and there, but I've got some bad things too that I need to correct. Well, the Lord is correcting them in love. Because He says this is a church, Ephesus means desirable. So let's look at it. In verse 2 He says, I know thy works. Here's, they had good works. Much to commend them for? I know thy works. Patience and endurance. Thy labor and thy patience. He knew what they had to endure in their day. And by the way, he knows what churches have to endure this day and hour. We have a lot to endure too, do we not? Uh, and the Lord knows all about it. He knows what we have to to test our patience. He knows our works, what we do in the service of God, and he says, And thou canst not and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. They they could test and try those that were evil, and notice it says uh, and that has tried them which say they are apostles and are not. Even in the apostles' days, we said this is the apostolic and post apostolic church. Even in that day, they had those that were claiming to be apostles. And Jesus is saying, I know how you tested them because they were claiming to be something they were not. Look at verse 2. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not. Jesus says they're not. And hast found them liars. You know, if a church today... Tests those that uh, come in with false teachings or false claims. Jesus would approve of that. He says we should, we should check up on things. Boy, we have people that uh, have false doctrines that from time to time will want to change the church around, make it something that's not. Brother Randy mentioned to me today of someone thinking about. Wanting this church to merge with another church? And I'm not going to go into detail, but I just say, a statement like that is beyond my comprehension. This church is not merging with any church. It's the Rio Dosa Baptist Church. We have certain convictions here. And brother, a lot of things that have to be changed before there could be a merging of any church in Rio Dosa. Because of certain convictions. Not that there's bad things in those churches, but we have different standards to go by and different convictions. And we stand by the Word of God. And I believe in the fundamentals of the faith, the doctrines of grace, and what the local churches has to be governed. We try to be upfront about every decision that's made, just like Brother Walker asked about things well ago. I'm glad he did. We make it clear. We want to know where we stand, what we're voting on, what we're not voting on. What the church approves of and disapproves of? That's the way it should be. That's the way the the Bible teaches it should be. But anyway, uh, if you'll notice this, Jesus knows all about it. And they tried. He says, How thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars. And He goes on and says, And hast borne, and hast patience, and for My name's sake hast labored and has not fainted. They tried the false teachers who had made false claims. They had not fainted. Though they were called to bear affliction for Christ, they had not wearied. You know, Paul says, Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap if you faint not. They had not wearied in all of their labor, By the way, the, the Ephesian church had put these people to the test that cla- made such claims, like they were claiming in verse 2, and has tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and has found them liars. John gives us a way in which to test, he shows us how to test those people that make false claims. And in first John chapter four, you might turn back just a few pages, not very far. First John chapter four, about two or three pages in your Bible. And verse two. Well let's read verse one and two. It says, Beloved, first John is just right back behind Revelation. First, second and third John, Jude and Revelation is all you have, so it's probably three or four pages back in your Bible from where we are. It says, Beloved, believe not every spirit. This is 1 John 4, verse 1. But try the spirits whether they are of God. Now, John tells us to try them or test them. And he gives us a way to do it. And he says, here's the way you do it. Because many... Well, he tells us, Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Now, hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Here's the way to do it. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Now, what does that mean? That means when a person or a pastor or a preacher preaches that Christ came from heaven, that He came from God, that He is come in the flesh, that means the incarnation, the birth of Christ, born of Mary a virgin, God becoming man, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, John tells us in his Gospel. And he says, we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, if you believe and confess, this is a spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That means He preexisted. That means He's deity. That means He's the Son of God. That means that He came down from heaven, like He said in John chapter 6, to dwell among us. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save, that which was lost. And there's scripture after scripture that proves the coming of Christ in the flesh in the form of a babe. And if you quoted Micah chapter 5 verse 2, I believe we did in the last lesson, where it says that, Thou Bethlehem Ephraim, thou art not least among the thousands of Judah. For out of thee shall he come forth that is to be ruler in Israel. Whose listen? Whose goings forth have been from of old, or from everlasting, from the days of eternity, from the days of infinity. So that Jesus had his beginning as a man when he was born, but we believe that he preexisted all eternity. It says, "In the beginning was the Word." And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John chapter 1, first two verses. And the Word was made flesh, I believe it's verse 14, and dwelt among us. So that which was in the beginning was made flesh and dwelt among us. And he says, This is a test. Have you ever heard people say it doesn't make any difference whether Christ was born? He was a good example, born of Mary, born of a virgin. It does make all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in the world if He came down from heaven. It makes, a difference in, it makes a difference in everything to believe in His pre-existence. If He did not pre-exist, He was not God. He, bo- he was born a man. But the Bible teaches His pre-existence. And the Bible teaches He was not born of a man, but of a woman. And the Bible teaches that He was the Son of the Highest. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Not a Son of God, but the Son of God. So there's a lot that depends upon the inspiration of the Bible. All of our, uh, our, uh, the doctrines of grace and of faith stand upon the virgin birth of Christ. But anyway, let's go on with this. So, here's a way to test. You have 1 John 4, verse 1 and 2. Now look, verse 3 says, do you still have that passage? Verse 3 says, And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. You see, there's a way of testing. There's a way of testing by what people believe. Someone says, it doesn't make any difference what you believe. It makes all the difference as to what you believe. Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God, and this is that spirit of Antichrist whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Now then, back in our passage. In Revelation chapter 2, we got down to verse 2. In verse 3, And has borne, and has patience, and for my name's sake, has labored, and has not fainted, they've not wearied. Now then, verse 4. Jesus says, Nevertheless, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. He didn't say you have lost your first love, but you've left your first love. This Ephesian church had left their first love. They had put works and labor and suffering and persecution and trying all the false prophets and false apostles and all of this to the forefront and they had forgotten to do it with a motivation of love. You know, Jesus condemned the Pharisees for one thing. He says, you compass land and sea to make one proselyte. But they had forgotten a lot of things. It was not just the matter of of getting more people in the church. By the way, we're not a church here that goes after other people's members either. We don't do that. If somebody wants to come, and they're welcome to come. But we're not going to go out here and try to get some dislocated member of some church. If they've got a good church home, let them stay there. And support their Pastor. And get behind them and, and do their work. And you get behind your pastor and associate and teachers and deacons and, and to support this work. And you see, this business of proselyting is no good. And yet we've had people do it to our people. I've had people try to drag off folks, good folks in our church, because they want them. Well, sure they want them because we've got some good people. Yes, they do want them. We're not going to give them up so easy though. We can have anything to say about it because it's not right to do that. The Bible tells in the Old Testament about those uh, shepherds that scatter the flock and steal other people's flock, and the Lord doesn't approve of that. If we don't have a two or three join at a time, or whenever, or whenever God leads them, and when God convicts us. Uh, a person that they need this for their church home? We had four Sunday, didn't we? Four wonderful two families, husbands and wives. And um, that's what we want is people that feel that they want to come because they want to come. And we don't go out here twisting arms to do it either. And I don't believe that's the right tactic. A lot of people disagree with me on a lot of things, but still that's what I believe. If you want to do it different, that's up to you. And, uh, but I believe that when the right time comes and the right message comes and the Holy Spirit convicts, everybody will make the right move. And you don't have to worry about it. But I'll tell you one thing I'm not for trying to steal anyone's members. Uh, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. They, they were loveless. They were doing things from the wrong motive. And we have to be careful that in the midst of all the service that we do, that we don't do it with the wrong motive. We, whatever we do in this church, let's do it because we want to serve the Lord, because we want to do God's will. The Bible says, He that doeth the will of God abideth forever. I like that. And, and Paul tells us in the Corinthians when he's talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 3, when he says, every man's work shall be tried and tested as gold and silver and precious stone or wood and hay and stubble. Listen carefully. Built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. He says, every man's work shall be tried as what, of what sort it is. It didn't say of how much it is. Of what sort it is. What motivates you? What motivates you? You say, well, I'll serve the church as long as I get thousands of people or hundreds of people in. Well, I had a preacher one time and he was a pretty good preacher too. Independent, fundamental Baptist preacher. In fact, he went to school with me in seminary. Got down to church in Florida. He told, he told us this story after he quit the ministry. And he, he was really a good preacher. He said, I asked the Lord to give me so many people this uh, certain day, walk down the aisle, Except Christ and so many members and so and so. And says, uh, I told him if he'd do that, I'd know he's with me. And, you know, I'd keep preaching. If he didn't do that, well, I'd know it's time for me to quit. Now, whatever gave a guy that crazy idea in the first place? Isaiah preached to people until the cities lied waste. And God says, Isaiah, you go and tell them. And he says, How long? He says, Till all their cities be wasted without inhabitants. And he didn't promise Isaiah one convert. And yet we find that Isaiah 53, when when Philip preached it to the Ethiopian eunuch, hundreds of years, seven, eight hundred years later, it brought that Ethiopian eunuch to a knowledge of salvation, and he baptized him, and he went on his way rejoicing. And Isaiah did that because that's what he was reading. The eunuch was reading from the prophet Isaiah, remember? And he says. Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how can I accept?" some men guide me? And it says, and Philip began at the same Scripture in Isaiah 53, and preached unto him Jesus. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. The sheep before his shearer were dumb, so he opened not his mouth. And that's the way that went. And he was saved. You see, sometimes we get the wrong idea about success or failure. God knows what's going on in your hearts, whether I do or not. And just because I can't see some visible results of someone walking down this aisle, I, I welcome them, I'm glad I know God does something with them too. But I don't know what He does with the ones that don't walk down the aisle because I feel that He does something in their hearts. I believe He does something through the teaching of His Word to each and every one of us. And even tonight when we're studying His Word, He's giving us food for our souls. And uh, so, uh, let's notice. It says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. You remember, your first love can be restored. Remember and restore this first love. Or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. What does he say? I will remove thy candlestick... Your light-bearing. He didn't say, I'm going to destroy the church. He says, you will no longer be a testimony. I will remove your light-bearing ability from the church. And if we lose our first love and do not do the first works, and if we do not uh, restore that first love, then we do not have a testimony. We have to have love for Jesus. And we have to have love for His Word. Blessed are they that love His law, His Word, His precepts, His commandments. And we have to love His, the brethren because the Bible tells us to love the brethren. We know, listen, in 1 John again, that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. Someone says, I want assurance of salvation. Do you love the brethren? That's assurance. Because he says, we know we pass passed from death into life because we love the brethren. I believe that's First John, maybe 3.14. You might check it just off the top of my head. But anyway, let's go on with this. I want to finish this statement. And then our time is gone. Uh, he says in verse uh, 5, I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent.